Everyone important, because everyone plays different rules. For the column, it's 20 boxes plus the box plus the box differential. So 20 for winning the column. I'm playing Albert. He has 18 boxes. He goes out. I have four. He wins 14 plus the 20 is 34 for that column. I'm at a Tony Suburban Long Island Country Club on a beautiful fall Sunday morning. All around me are about 40 to 50 older men settling in for a long day of playing cards. They come from all over, Houston, Alabama, New Orleans. Some of them are businessmen. Some of them are gamblers. But they aren't here to play poker. The game they're here to play is gin rummy. The buy-in for the day's tournament is just $1,000. But don't let that fool you. There is a lot more money than that in this room. The lavish spread of lobster and prime rib easily costs more than what's in the prize pool. And the bets the players book between each other stretch well into the five figures. The tournament itself, which is now in its 18th year, is held mostly for bragging rights. The winner will have his name etched into a plaque that marks the champions from every year. But there's one man who is the favorite every year to have his name etched on the plaque. He's won this tournament four times before, which is more than any other player. He's a man who built a fortune gambling in private card games over the last half century a man who's a living legend among gin players and professional gamblers. He's the best money gin player in New York City since the 1980s. The square public, if they know him at all, know him as the guy who was arrested and lost over a million dollars during the infamous Molly's Game indictments that they made a movie about. But he's no poker player. He's the man who literally wrote the book on high-stakes gin rummy, a book that sells for hundreds of dollars a copy, a book that changed the way gamblers all over the world play gin. And that man's name is Michael Saul. This is the story of the greatest living gin rummy player in the world. From the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Gamblers is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Also, there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700.
So if you know he's got kings, queens, and either eights or nines, and you have a king and an eight, you should throw the eight. But if you know he's got kings, queens, and only eights are in there, no nines, now it's 100%, you should throw the king. Did you follow that? That's okay. If you only know Jen from playing with your grandma at the kitchen table, then compared to you, Michael Saul is on some kind of ethereal plane when it comes to Jen. And if for some unfortunate reason you don't know the game of Jen at all, well, let my grandma explain the basics to you. It's simple, really. Each player gets 10 cards. Each player on their turn can either pick up the discard or take the top card of the deck. The idea is to make a run of three or four suited cards, six, seven, eight of diamonds, say, or three or four of a kind. But Mima, what if you can meld all 10 cards in your hand? That, my boy, is a sweet ginger brown. You mean gin, right? Yes, gin. And that's worth a whole lot of matchsticks. Meemaw's right about one thing. In the middle of the 20th century, gin rummy was the most popular card game in America. Perhaps nowhere more so than in Hollywood, where the celebrity infatuation with the game led to gin showing up in a number of movies in the early 1940s and decades beyond. Gin rummy's my game, Sam. Okay, cut the cards. Not that away, you turn the loot. It's hard to believe today, since we so rarely hear about it anymore. But gin rummy from the 40s through the 80s was as much a part of American culture as poker is today. In fact, poker may be partly to blame for gin's demise. Because as poker grew in popularity, gin games lost players. And younger gamblers who learned poker on TV had a hard time adjusting to gin. This is the problem with, with gin, as far as poker players are concerned. They don't want to remember the cards. It's like, gin is too hard. I don't want to sit there and think and remember. But to me, gin's a better game because you're in every hand. If you're playing poker correctly, you're playing, I don't know, 20%, 25%, something like that. So it's a lot, it's a lot less thinking. Yeah. That's two-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner Abe Masseri. Abe has made millions playing poker. But he made his bones in the private clubs of Manhattan playing backgammon and gin, long before poker became the card game du jour. Abe's not the only poker player at the tournament. I'd say nearly everyone at the event under 50 is a poker player, like Aaron Katz, a regular in some of the highest-stakes poker games in Las Vegas, who tells me exactly why there aren't more poker players like him in the big gin games today. No money in gin. Yeah. No money. It's like a lot of games, there's very few people, there's very few people that can win in any game for that matter. And then, I mean, I enjoy it because I think it made, I've had my best poker years the last four or five years while I've been playing a lot of gin. So obviously I think for me, it's helped me sharpen my memory and just open my brain to different avenues of how to think about games and stuff. So for me, I think it's been a good crossover event, but not a lot of people play. A, it's a tougher game, I mean, it's a tough game. I mean, gin's a tough game. John Schultz, another young poker player who's here at the Long Island tournament, agrees. Well, I kind of mostly gave up the poker to play gin. I think gin's a, a better game. Yeah. Um, it's a faster game. You're making a lot more decisions. Live poker, which is what I used to play out in Vegas, is, is a terribly slow game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. also, I'd say there's less easy money to be made because 
there's a lot of people who play poker in a casino who have no clue what they're doing, and so they're just giving their money away. There's not too many people here who are just like giving their money away. Maybe, maybe Michael Saul thinks that, but <laughs> I don't think most other people. This wasn't always the case with gin. In fact, in the early days of gin's boom in America, it had a reputation among gamblers as being a game of luck, one that only cheaters could win at consistently. Here's how the writer Damon Runyon described gin in his 1944 short story, The Lacework Kid. Can you play gin rummy? <laughs> Any moron can play it. Do you play it well? Who can't? 95% luck, the other five is skill. I can teach any dumb animal to play gin if I can get it to hold ten cards. I do not mean that. Gamblers like Runyon may have believed gin to be a mugs game that was all luck and no skill. But that's just because Michael Saul wouldn't be born for another year. I uh, was born in California, raised in Philadelphia. I gambled as a kid all the time. You know, don't ask me why, but most of my youth from literally seven or eight years on revolved around making money. I had businesses. I was selling illegal firecrackers in fourth and fifth grades. Michael was a smart kid, but he may have been a little too smart for his own good. School just couldn't hold his attention. Like a lot of successful gamblers throughout history, he had a tough time with people telling him what to do, at least at first. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 15. I, I was sleeping in pool rooms, and I was really pretty much a slob. And the Army, fortunately, which is the greatest social program the U.S. government ever put together, straightened me out. After serving, Michael attended college at St. Joseph's, then Temple, then Delaware Law School. He wanted to become a lawyer. When I got to college, I did better, a lot better. But I was taking philosophy and religion and things that uh, I was interested in. I was trying to solve the problems of the universe at the time, so... While Saul was in college, gambling took a backseat. And not just to his studies. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll mm -hmm. were, you know, everything for about four years. After the Army, love was in, money was out. And after college, money came back in and love was no longer mm. the driving force. I joined a, a club, all men's club, that had all very successful self-made guys, non-sectarian. We had really the most prominent people in Philadelphia, or some of them, as members, uh, John Cardinal Kroll, federal judges, and very, very successful business people. The men's club in Philadelphia was a great place for a young law student to network and land a good job. But let's be honest, and this is still true to this day, whether it's a hoity-toity East Coast social club or an Elks Lodge in Bumblefuck, Mississippi, there's only one thing going on in there. Gambling. I mean, I knew gambling upside down, inside out from my years in the pool room, and but I was right at home. I didn't know, I barely knew how to play backgammon. I barely knew how to play golf, and I basically didn't know anything except the rules in gin. In fact, that's what led me to play gin was that there were many more gin players at the club playing much higher stakes 
than backgammon or golf. And although I sort of continued with them, I just, I really took gin seriously. Michael was now in his early 20s, a little bit older and a whole lot wiser than the young pool room hustler he once was. But he was also wiser than all the well-heeled pigeons of Philadelphia in the club's gin game, who loved to play, played poorly, and were rich enough to not mind losing. It wasn't long before Michael Saul was winning enough money that he started to rethink his choice to become a lawyer. You know, in gambling, there's always a bit of ego if you do something better than someone, outsmart them. But I wasn't really intent on making a living at gambling. It's just what I did. I mean, I started winning money, and I was winning so much so fast that I just forgot. I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I just didn't know what else to do with myself at the time. I built it quickly. I I just won. It was a lot of low-hanging fruit. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Michael made a bundle playing in the club's regular gin game. But if everyone at the club knew that Michael was making all his money from them, they'd make him for a shark, and they wouldn't want to play him anymore. So he started up a front business just to give the appearance that his money was coming from somewhere else and that he was just playing for kicks like the rest of them. I opened up four store-in-store carpet stores with my closest friend who was in the carpet business. And he and I were partners apart from his existing business in these. And I would go in a couple days a week while I'm playing at the club. But it gave me a claim to legitimacy. And who knew maybe the business was going to make money. The carpet business did make money. But the life of a butter and egg man didn't suit him. He knew he wasn't meant to peddle carpets. Finally, a guy comes in on this Saturday and he's arguing about 25 cents a yard on a carpet sale. And I called my partner on the phone. I said, Norman, you draw my salary. I said, whatever money's left at the end of the year, you can give me whatever you want. I'm out. Back at the country club tournament, Michael Saul is paired in the second round with Abe Masseri, the two-time World Series of Poker winner we heard from before. Abe's not a fish. He's no sucker. In fact, He's one of the very few people in this room who can give Michael Saul a decent game. He's a, he's a good player. The be, three best players in the room are Michael, the guy who's playing Abe Mystery, and Stephen Schoenfeld. They're the three, they're beyond. That's Richard Schechter, who works for the tournament's host, the hedge fund billionaire Stephen Schoenfeld. They're very mathematical. They know all the odds. Uh, they remember every card. They can read when you pick a card from the that the opponent throws to you, or, or the opponent picks a card that you throw, and it comes back with another card, they know usually statistically what they have in their hand. A crowd forms around the table as they play. Everyone wants to see the two pros at work. I was there in the crowd, whispering, so as not to disturb the players. You've got to kind of be honed, locked in. I mean, look at Michael. He never, he never looks up. He's totally, and look how he moves. He moves like... It's just robotic. He's just, he moves so quickly. Big part of what you have to do to play at that level is you have to know every card that's come out of the deck, remember them all, and you have to think about what's in your hand. And you, most important of all is you have to deduce what's in your player's hand, what's in your opponent's hand. 
to process all that and to move as quickly as he's moving. I mean, I couldn't do it. Of course, he's been doing it his whole life, but... So how many little bits of information do you have to have in your head? Like... A lot. I mean, like I said, you've got to play your hand. Look, people like me, when I play gin, I play my hand. I try somewhat to think about what you have, but I'm going to base that on what I see you discard and what, what I see you pick up, and I'm going to try to think about what you might be going for, but I'm also going to just play the cards I'm dealt. These players are, they are on another couple of levels, like the amount of deduction, logical deduction that you have to do is much more than like, oh, my opponent discarded a ten of clubs, so it's safe for me to discard a ten of diamonds because they're not going for tens or whatever, because you have to think about every card in the deck, what's the probability that certain cards are left and in their, your opponent's hand versus still left in the deck to draw. It's hard. And, you know, there's a lot of luck in gin, which is why people love it, because you can still beat a top player by just getting super lucky. And it's just like with poker, this is a game where people convince themselves that they're good because they win, even though they, they could be... But when you can do all those things, and you can do it quickly, and you can do it in every game without making mistakes, the luck won't matter. Over the long, you know, over the long run, you're going to... You're going to demolish everybody in your path because the vast majority of us play the way that I play, which is play my hand, make some simple guesses about your hand. Look, he just went out. Again. He just went out on him again. This far away, it seems like he's making short work of Abe. Abe's got a look on his face like he can't believe it. I mean, he's smiling, but. After the end of the round, I caught up with Michael to see how it went. I beat him. He told me, he slammed the cards. He says, you're fucking good and lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I told him the Ben Hogan quote, the more I practice, the luckier I get. (laughs) Yeah. You're up. Good luck. Back to work. More after this. Add a little excitement to your sports watching experience by betting on all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook this football season. There's a reason why FanDuel is America's number one sports book. Their app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique, fun bet types like same game parlay, and exclusive always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And if you win, they even get you your winnings safely in as little as 24 hours. Right now, FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back if you don't win your first bet. Seriously, there's no strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. I know Thanksgiving's gonna be weird for all of us this year, but since I'm not going to my in-laws like I usually do, it means I can pig out as much as I want and then lay around on the couch watching football. My producer, Craig Horlbeck, host of the Ringer Fantasy Football Show, says to take the Texans on the money line. So hopefully they'll win outright, and I'll have one more thing to be thankful for. And don't forget to check out FanDuel's same-game parlays as well. If you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started, and be sure to sign up with promo code GAMBLERS so they know I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code GAMBLERS. 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, and Tennessee. First online real money wager only. 
Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, Tennessee Red Line, 1-800-889-9789, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Back in the 1970s, Michael Saul was winning so much money playing in the gin game at his club in Philadelphia that he decided to branch out. At the time, outside of Las Vegas, there was perhaps no higher concentration of gamblers in America than in New York City. In New York, you could find any game that you could name for any amount that you could count. And you wouldn't just find action in the fancy private social clubs. Some of the wildest gambling in New York went on in dimly lit basement card rooms, like Manhattan's storied Mayfair Club, where the surroundings may have been unimpressive, but the stakes were eye-popping. When Michael Saul first arrived, he didn't find a lot of gin. In those days, the game that was all the rage was backgammon. I used to come to New York to learn, and I met a lot of the classic players, you know, Papazian, McGrill, and whatnot. And they were playing in those days $25 a point at the Mayfair, and for them, it was all the money in the world. In backgammon, games often finished with scores in the single digits. So each game could end up costing anywhere from a few hundred to a thousand dollars at those stakes. We were playing a peculiar structure, but it was the equivalent of maybe 500 or a thousand dollars a point at my club. And so, you know, while these guys were there trying to squeeze every nickel out of it, but here, although there were occasional backgammon games where guys would win or lose a hundred or two hundred thousand, uh, the games I was playing in in the beginning, you know, if you won or lost four or five thousand, it was a lot. So if you had a bankroll of seventy-five, a hundred thousand, you were well protected against any bad streak. Michael had heard that New York gamblers were the cream of the crop. This was the stomping ground of legends like Stu Unger. Gamblers in New York were supposed to be the toughest to beat. It didn't take long for Michael to figure out they weren't as good as they thought they were. Well, they suffer from the illusion that all wisdom resides between the East River and the Hudson. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the good food does in the country. I'm not sure all the wisdom does. (laughs) (laughs) When I started playing in this game in New York, there's no egos in the world like New York egos. I must have won nine out of 10 weeks, at least six out of seven for a year before anyone figured out, hey, you know what? He must be a better player than us. In other words, they couldn't believe that this local yokel from Philadelphia came up and was actually a better player. The truth is the game I played in in Philadelphia, every single player almost was better than any player Mm -hmm. in this game. Michael found games to gamble on all over the city backgammon, poker, whatever he could find. There were regular gin games at the town club on 86th Street or at the famous Friars Club, a private club for celebrities and people who worked in the entertainment industry. But it was a game he found in a hotel room run by a woman named Louise Goldsmith that would forever change Michael's life. My friend Billy Foreman used to go to the club. They called it the Coterie in the Carlton Hotel at 61st and Madison. They rented two apartments. 
And uh, they had a dress code in the beginning, you know. At any rate, it was supposed to be primarily backgammon and Little Bridge, maybe. But people started playing other games. And I don't know, six months after he opened it, Billy came up to me and said, Michael, you ought to go up there. They're playing high stakes gin. I went up and they were playing higher stakes than I was playing in Philadelphia. What were they playing? It was 40 cents, but there's scorekeeping, you know, half rudels if uh, one hand goes to the wall and the other wins. Now, 40 cents a point may not sound like much, but these guys were playing Hollywood gin, which was standard among serious gamblers. And Hollywood gin was a lot different than the kind of gin you played in the kitchen with your Meemaw. Hollywood gin was serious shit. But you don't have to take my word for it. Here's a 100% real Hollywood agent to explain it to you. My client doesn't get out of bed in the morning for that kind of money. It's an insult. An insult! Call me back when you're ready to be serious. Okay, what is this about? Hollywood gin. Right, Hollywood gin. All right. Hollywood gin is just regular gin, except you keep score differently. See, in Hollywood gin, you score the hands as if you're playing three different games at the exact same time. Each time you win a hand, you get the score of that hand, plus a box in the game where you're on. A box is like 25 points. Then... When you reach a certain amount of points in one of the three games, that game finishes, but the other two games play on. And if you can close out a game before the other team has scored a single point, whoo, baby, that is a Schneider. And that's when you double your whole score. And when you add in things like Rudels, which is a bonus when both partners win in the same hand, the score can climb even higher. So you can finish up or down thousands of points when everything is said and done. Look, I get it. Boxes, Schneiders, Rudels, Blitzes. The whole thing sounds like a fucking menu at some weird Eastern European restaurant. But this is the stuff that makes Hollywood gin so much fun. The stakes climb from pennies to thousands of dollars in the flash of an eye. I gotta go. Jenny, when's my next meeting? The stakes at the Coterie were much higher than what Michael was used to playing in Philly. But he wasn't intimidated. Far from it. Sure, a loss in this game could obliterate his bankroll. But Michael Saul was a true gambler. He couldn't consider the downside without also considering the upside. And the upside in a game like this, over the long run, well, it was potentially life-changing. So my first day here, I must have lost every set. But while I'm losing this set, I'm actually giddy inside because I can see they're all cripples. None of them have a clue. And I don't, I must, I lost like $25,000, $30,000. And I went to leave and Louise had left. She left what became a, is a good friend of mine today, but I, I never met him at that point. Mike Sabodny in charge of the club. And when I went to leave, Mike says, well, you owe 30000 I said, yeah, Billy said that he would pay for me. I had that set up ahead of time. And he said, oh, okay. He said, uh, I'll tell you what, you want me to pay? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'll pay the 30000 and you give me half your action going forward. So I said, what if I never play again? So he says, I'll be out 30000 So I said, well, first of all, all you did, you saw me lose almost every single game. He said, I just had a feeling the way you were taking it, it was like, you seemed almost happy. (laughs) Yeah, I became a regular. I started commuting back and forth to New York. Every once in a while, I'd stay at a hotel. 
three, four years later, I got an apartment with Mike. And then four or five years after that, I got my own apartment. A few years after that, I bought this apartment. You know, I like to say you can make more money in New York by accident than you can make on purpose anywhere else. And it's true. Michael spent the next decade dominating the gin games in New York City. During that stretch, he kept refining his craft. And although gin had been around for much longer than he had even been alive, he was able to unlock secrets of the game perhaps unknown to any player before him. He built up his bankroll into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, played regularly in the highest stakes games in town, and invested his winnings in businesses in the stock market. It wasn't too long before he found that he didn't have to rely on his gambling winnings to make a living. So Jin became less a job and more an intellectual pursuit for him. He started to think that he should write down all he knew about Jin, that he should write a book. I always get comments, people tell me, you should write a book about this, about that, you know, your life, your stories from the pool room, you know, but I never, pay attention. In a sense, it was almost an easy book to write because I didn't do any research. Granted, I thought through a lot, but, but I was basically just writing down stuff I already knew. The funny thing was, at the beginning of the book, I didn't understand nearly as much as I did by the end of the book. Not to say it's the great literature achievement of our time, but... It may not have been the great literature achievement of our time, but it sure looked a lot like the Holy Bible bound in fine leather, with gold lettering on the cover and spine. He called this magnum opus Gin Rummy, a predator's guide. And the price of the book said a lot about how much the author valued the wisdom within its pages. It sold for $200 a copy. I had a publisher willing to publish my book, and I forgot what he was going to give me, $5 a copy, sell it for $25, something like that. And I decided that a book of this nature, nobody's going to read unless they gamble. If they gamble, just they're going to see it just like I did that poker book 40 years ago, you know, that what's the difference? So I priced it at $200. And at first, it's funny, the uh, Howard Schwartz used to own the Gambler's Book Club. And he told me people would come around, they'd see 200 and they that's ridiculous. And then they'd open it and they'd start browsing it and so forth. And he said most of the time they'd wind up buying it. Like I've had Michael Saul's book. I bought it back. I bought it back before I even played Gin for Money. And I just was like, I'm just going to spend 200 bucks on this book. That's John Schultz, the poker player we heard from earlier. According to him, the Predator's Guide is worth every penny. Like, I have basically every single gin book uh, ever written, at least that I'm kind of aware of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some books that have some okay advice. There's some which just terrible advice. Michael Saul's book is the only one that uh, I-, I think, you know, is, is truly high level. Yeah. So. The Predator's Guide doesn't just look beautiful. It has some awfully romantic prose for a book about a card game. When warning the reader against putting too much value on a single card, he says... Beware of falling in love. When writing about reading opponents, he talks about their pain, anguish, or joy. He calls some poor decisions bureaucratic disease. There's plenty of technical writing and concepts that are over my head, but there's also a personality that shines through. Listen to this from the book's opening. I'm often asked how much luck is involved in gin. I do not want to sound simplistic, but luck is not an issue. Very weak players can win in any given session or even for a month straight. But as folks in North Carolina say, 
The sun don't shine on the same dog's ass every day. The weaker player will eventually lose. Play fast, you moron. Did you interview Pig Vomit? Did, it, hashtag Pig Vomit. <laughs> hashtag Pig Vomit. Hashtag I never knocked. Many of these players are well-dressed, with alligator loafers or tailored shirts. They're all clearly well-off. But they're also New Yorkers, which means they're loud and jocular. They tease each other and they coffeehouse across the table as they play. It's all just part of the game. They clearly respect one another. But Michael Saul, he seems above it all. He carries himself with an air of seriousness. He plays gin with focus. The game is fun for him, but mainly because of how it engages his mind. Michael describes gin as trying to put together a small puzzle as quickly as possible. And he'd be content to sit here and solve these little puzzles, even if there wasn't money on the line. At this event, for all intents and purposes, there actually isn't any money on the line. Because unlike most of these players, who have tens of thousands of dollars in side bets with one another, Michael doesn't have any side action on himself. Nobody will bet with him. The only reward he's playing for, other than the pleasure of spending a beautiful day playing cards next to the golf course, is getting his name engraved on the plaque for the fifth time. What about you? How's it going? Did you make the top four? I'm in the finals. You are? Not the final finals. You're in the top four, though. Four, yeah. So you're playing... You and are playing for third and fourth money right now? If I win the first, then I'm playing for the uh, championship. I mean, I've just won. And I, I wasn't here three years. So all those guys get asterisks by their names. I've been in the final four. It's the same format every year, more than half the time. Yeah, so I cashed, which is hard to do. There's 15 players. Sometimes there were 20, 22 players. I don't know why. I guess I've just been lucky. (laughs) Not too long after writing it, the Predator's Guide opened new doors for Michael, introducing him to players across the country and around the world. He was invited to games far and wide for all kinds of stakes and became a de facto ambassador for the game of gin. I would go to Florida, to Miami Beach, the Eden Rock Hotel, and every day there'd be 40 gin players there, guys who lived in Miami Beach, and we'd all meet there, and there'd be five games, eight games. There's quite a few games players in Germany and Denmark who I know who have bought my book, and I mean, I know them personally, who are in the gin. But while Michael was finding new games in places as far away as Germany or Monte Carlo, he was also noticing that there were fewer games overall than there had been in the 1980s. The bad news is lost popularity. The good news is you can only play one game at once anyway. (laughs) So as long as you have one game, you're okay. In the early aughts, as poker's popularity skyrocketed, younger members of country clubs were passing up not only the gin games, but even the golf course to play poker. And as the square money flocked to poker like so many pigeons, the professional gamblers followed them, leaving fewer players in the gin and backgammon clubs. Michael Saul joined them for a time, but eventually decided poker wasn't for him. I don't particularly care for poker, only because my brain is not engaged in a continuous way like it is with gin. 
All the same, his association with the high-stakes poker scene in New York landed him in some hot water. He was indicted in 2013, along with Molly Bloom, in the federal dragnet that inspired the book and film Molly's Game. One of the poker players' father and his partner were booking bets for Russian oligarchs. Truthfully, to this day, I don't believe anything they were doing was illegal. None of the oligarchs were U.S. citizens, and they weren't even betting from U.S. soil, but they were betting astronomical numbers. One of their sons was involved in a sports betting operation. They arrested him for bookmaking. They don't know the difference. I mean, if I told you the level of ignorance, it, it's, and they arrested my partners here, and they arrested me. They had 20 hours of telephone conversations, not one word ever of any illegal activity. Yet they arrested me, they charged me with money laundering, racketeering, ridiculous. So I get a call one time from this young guy in Vegas, one of these, my partner's sons. He says, Michael, I got a problem. I got a check a guy owed me for $3 million, but he sent me a 1099. So I said, pay the tax. What do you think the note that the agent wrote contemporaneously? Tax fraud. I wasn't there when they came to my apartment, but I turned myself in and uh, I pled guilty to violation of the Travel Act, which was ridiculous. I should have held out. What they were doing in a lot of people's minds wasn't illegal. In fact, the prosecutor one time, somebody asked him, did he think that what my partners did was illegal? And he said, well, if you ask 10 lawyers, Nine of them would tell you they don't know, and the tenth would be lying. Uh, you know, I mean, it's unprecedented. Is it illegal to take? They were booking, that part was true, but they were booking the foreign nationals betting off from foreign soil. Mm -hmm. Among the 34 defendants, four were locked up, including the two ringleaders who got five years each. About $70 million were forfeited in total. Michael didn't have to do any time, but he did agree to forfeit $1.3 million. He still believes that what he and his partners were doing was legal, and that the government, like most Americans, fundamentally misunderstand gambling and what is and isn't against the law. He's candid about this episode in his life. It was just another hand, and he's already on to the next one. Philosophically, for me, the past is only a tool to learn on how to deal with the present and the future. Mm -hmm. I don't think about it. I don't, apart from where I can use it, experience and so forth. Things were great. Things were bad at other times. But what difference does it make, as Hillary would say? <laughs> I'm sure I could have done more. I could have done less. Again, I, I plan for tomorrow. I'm living for today. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm concerned with. So no regrets, no, uh, you know. The Romans thought that dice were controlled by the gods. Sometimes I share their, <laughs> their viewpoint. On page 195 of the Predator's Guide, Michael Saul writes, 
A man's money has nothing to do with his larceny. The only answer when you're unsure is to simply not play. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Still, always monitor the saint's behavior and leave it to a higher authority to decide when the sinner has found redemption. I forgot to ask you how you did in the tournament after we left. Because when we left, I you ran lost fourth. You went uh, fourth. Yeah, yeah. In the money, I think the lowest cash prize. Were you disappointed? No, no, no. I've been around the block too many times. <laughs> you know, the race does not always go to the swift, but that's the way to bet. Who won the uh, Who won the tournament? A guy, Richie, a dentist. Right when we left, you had just finished playing with Ed, and you had said that he made like seven mistakes, and he asked you how many he you made. He did a couple of ridiculous things, but he, he got paid for the first one. Uh-huh. I mean, he, he's got three aces. He's got nine made with three aces and a three of clubs. The four of clubs is gone. I can't get out of the hand because I'm stuck with an odd ace. I can't die. I know he's nine made. I have an odd ace and I have an odd like tennis spades or something, neither of which can be tied up. So you got two cards can't be tied up. You're out of business. Best you could do is buy his cards. He takes a deuce of clubs, switches out, which now allows me to release the ace. And now I can win the hand. Mm hmm. Did you follow that? That's okay. We can't all be predators. Some of us are prey. Next time on Gamblers, we'll meet the punk rock horse player, Emily Gullickson. Uh, Clefeffy just took Clefeffy just took the lead. She's being tracked by the nine. Nine. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show was produced by Craig Horlbeck, Noah Malale, and Isaac Lee. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. The sound design was done by Isaac Lee. 